Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to focus on trends in an industry that's literally been around for centuries. I'm speaking about print journalism, and more specifically, newspapers. To help us explore where newspapers have been, where they are now, and how they may evolve in the future, we've brought on an outstanding guest expert. He's Ken Hertz. Ken Hertz is currently Chief Operating Officer of the Lenfest Institute for Journalism. The nonprofit institute works to develop sustainable business models for local news and information. It's also the parent company of the Philadelphia Inquirer, a 190-year-old newspaper. Ken has spent more than 30 years in the news business, mostly at Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal. As the Wall Street Journal's Vice President of Finance, Ken developed data and metrics to support the company's digital revenue growth while restructuring printing and distribution. Prior to that, Ken served as publisher of the Wall Street Journal Europe, based in Brussels, which at the time had over 100,000 print circulation. Ken was also general manager at Dow Jones's Newswires, which covers the world's financial markets. Ken entered the news business after receiving an MBA and a master's in journalism from Columbia University. Hi, Ken. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hi, Jeff. It's really good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, newspapers are a topic I'm, I really love, and I look forward to talking about it with you. And I couldn't agree with you more, not only that you are well qualified and that you love what you do, but also I'm very interested in what's happening with newspapers. I've been a newspaper reader for a long, long time. I will tell you quite candidly, Ken, my initial interest in newspapers, Philadelphia Inquirer and the Bulletin, because I'm from Philadelphia, and the interest I had was sports and the jumble. <laughs> I used to run to get it out of the newsstand just so I could get the jumble and the sports page. Now, that was the way to do it before the internet. Exactly. That's how I got started. Before we go any further, Ken, could you please tell our listeners a little bit about how and when you became involved in the newspaper industry? Was this something you had planned to do, Ken? Did it happen by chance? And then maybe if you could say a few words also for our audience about the Lenfest Institute for Journalism. Okay, great. Um, I was always interested in news and the news industry. And for graduate school, I went to a media management program at Columbia where I got an MBA and a master's in journalism. While there, I did a thesis on the growing use of home computers. That was in the early 1980s when the computers were Commodore 64, Atari yes. 800. So when I graduated, I joined Dow Jones, which publishes the Wall Street Journal, but it also uh, was involved in trying to distribute a whole lot of financial information electronically through what was called electronic information services before, uh, before the internet. And when I joined, I was in the finance department as a financial analyst, and I was focused on two things. One was newspapers that Dow Jones was considering buying for its Ottawa newspaper chain. For example, we bought the 
Riverside Press Enterprise in Riverside, California. Hmm. And the other thing was business plans for new electronic information services. So I, I, I think that uh, as I talk, it'll be about newspapers, but also about news in general and uh, the, the news business and how people get news and information even beyond newspapers. So your interest, Ken, having gone to a terrific school of journalism, Columbia, and I say that as somebody who went to Temple and I knew Columbia had a stellar and still does a stellar reputation. Your interest was not as much in the writing. You were kind of in the business side. Is that correct? Yes, I was in the business side from the beginning. At one point, I figured I was better at math than writing, so I should go into the business. <laughs> it's a nice combination. And what better place to learn and to really grow than being with Dow Jones? I mean, what, what a great place to start. Now, how about the Lenfest Institute for Journalism? That's where you are. And I think it behooves us to have you say a little bit about Lenfest. So the mission of the Lenfest Institute is to help find, develop, and support sustainable business models for quality local journalism. The Lenfest Institute is a subsidiary of the Philadelphia Foundation, a 100-year-old community foundation, and it's also the parent company of the Philadelphia Inquirer, a 191-year-old newspaper. But our mission is not just to help the Inquirer survive and thrive, though that's a big part of it, but to make sure that the people of uh, Philadelphia and the Philadelphia region are well served with quality news and information. And in doing that, we also run and run national programs and work with national funders because there's lots to be learned in the more than a thousand other experiments that uh, newspapers are doing around the country to try to find their path to sustainability. Wow, we have to touch on a few of those experiments. We're not gonna be able to do a thousand of them. But Ken, that sounds great. If you wouldn't mind saying a, a few words about Mr. Lenfest. Jerry Lenfest uh, initially worked for um, Mr. Annenberg, who had, who had a magazine TV guide. Uh, Annenberg also moved into cable television, and Jerry Lenfest himself bought some cable television stations. He made his more than a billion dollars uh, in the cable industry as it was growing. His systems eventually became part of Comcast. Uh, what he did is he gave relatively uh, small percentages of that money to each of his children and decided to donate the rest during his lifetime. His last two projects were the Museum of the American Revolution and the Philadelphia Inquirer, journalism in Philadelphia, which he thought were inextricably linked. He also uh, set a, created the structure he did because he wasn't sure as a cable entrepreneur whether newspapers could survive as such in print. Maybe the Inquirer could survive or not. But what was important was that the quality public civic journalism that had traditionally been produced by newspapers survived in whatever form uh, was needed, uh, given where consumers were going and the changes in technology. Looking Forward, as you may know, Ken, tends to focus on the future. That's why we call it Looking Forward. We also call it Looking Forward because it's positive. We're looking forward to things. But to do that, we first like to look a little bit backwards. I know this is not going to be something that will be easy for you to summarize because you've been in this industry for 30-something years. If you can take a quick look, though, at those last 30 years, two or three decades, let's say, and talk about how, in your opinion, 
and from your experience, the newspaper industry has evolved over those past two to three decades. And let's think about prior to COVID. We'll get into COVID, but let's think about prior to Could you please share your perspectives with our audience on that? Okay. So over the past couple of decades, um, print revenue, print newspaper revenue has plummeted. Audiences have grown digitally for newspapers, but as consumers have moved away from print towards news on their desktop computers, tablets, and phones, print revenue has uh, fallen off a cliff. And let me give you some statistics. The statistics uh, come from the Pew Research Center, the Reuters Institute, the Pointer Institute, uh, Penny Abernathy, now a professor at Northwestern's Medill School, uh, Mary Meeker, an internet analyst, and our own research at the Lentfest Institute. If you go back in time to 2010, in 2010, 27% of all advertising revenue was spent on print. Uh, you know, 11% on radio, 43% on TV, 25% on desktop, very little on mobile. So while 27% of ad revenue was spent on print, only 8% of people's time then was spent on print. Mm. You fast forward to 2018, um, in 2018, only 7% of advertising revenue was spent on print in nationwide, down from 27% to 7%. That's a you know, 70 or 80% decline. What's grown? What's grown is mobile, you know, ads on people's phones. Uh, the second point to make is on readership. The median newspaper in the 20,000 to 200,000 uh, category, which is most towns in the United States, from 2012 to 2018, fell about 45%. In larger newspapers, uh, it was about 40%. And the same with uh, newspapers of under 20,000, it was around 40%. Um, newspaper revenue hasn't fallen as fast because newspapers have been raising prices quickly, but that is its own problem. And even in 2017 to 18, before COVID, um, print newspaper readership was down between 12 and 13%. So the trends are actually accelerating. And a Reuters Institute stat, in 2013, 47% of people in the U.S. or adults in the U.S. got news from newspapers. It's now down to 19% by 2019. You can't fight consumer behavior. Consumers are moving away from print towards consuming their news on their computer screens and their tablets and their phones. And newspapers have to adjust uh, to keep providing news in the new environment. And we'll get into that. So Ken, if you had to point to the time in your career, which we're really talking about here, where things really started to decline, was it with the birth of the internet? Was it when the cell phones came? What really precipitated or yeah. accelerated that decline, in your opinion? Okay. Remember that the internet first came online in 1996. It was around 2006 that the decline really started and picked up. You know, the first four or five years of the internet, it was kind of there, but it wasn't pervasive. Um, 10 years into the internet, it just accelerated. And then what happens in 2013, that's 2006. In 2013-14, um, that's when cell phones and smartphones really take off and become an impact. They, they were introduced in 2007, again, still five or six years before they had enough penetration to really tip the scales and cause the change. Yes. And just to comment on what you said, and you'll relate to this, I can remember not only growing up with a newspaper, but even in my 
30s when that classified section of the print paper, I'm talking the inquire, let's say, was loaded with ads and situations wanted and things like that. It ain't there anymore, but we'll get into that. If you could comment just a little bit further on how many newspapers are still flourishing or and or have gone out of business in recent times and talk a little bit more, Ken, if you can, about the demographics of who's still reading the newspaper. I guess you could bifurcate that between who's reading the actual hard copy newspaper and those who are looking online. Right. So from 2004 to 2020, which are the statistics that uh, the Medill School at Northwestern is putting out, there were 1,470 newspapers in 2004. Of that, about 200 have uh, just disappeared. Wow. Uh, in, in, and that's dailies. In terms of including weekly papers, which a lot of small towns do rely on, uh, more than 2,000 of those have disappeared from wow. 8,900 to 6,700. It's not just that papers have disappeared. It's that papers have been hollowed out, too. You've got papers that uh, are sometimes, uh, they go by the, people in the industry call them ghost newspapers or zombie newspapers. They're still there on the outside, but inside they're empty. Um, the Denver Post, for example, not to pick on them, but 10 years ago, they had over 200 reporters in the newsroom. Now there's fewer than 60. Um, the uh, Miami Herald, similar, less than 100 reporters now. They had well over 200 a number of years ago. Mm. So if you lose half your reporting staff or more, you're in trouble. And the number of uh, people working in newsrooms, uh, newspaper newsrooms in the U.S., has gone down over the last 10 years from about 70,000 around the country to about 30,000 now. Wow. Um, while that has happened, there have been 5,000 new jobs created in digital news startups, but those 5,000 new people don't replace the more than 30,000 that have been lost. This is a serious problem for, you know, local news. And, you know, local news has been called by some, whether it's the, the plankton of the ecosystem, you know, it's where most, it's where the majority of original reporting happens that's then picked up by TV news and by other sources. Now, how about readership? If you can comment a little bit about who's reading the newspaper, demographically speaking, and that could be age, that could be gender, and are they reading it more online? There's a couple of things to unpack there. One, if you just stick with the print newspaper, generally, the, the average age of readers is over 60. Um, so it is a uh, read by older white suburbanites. That said, uh, news organizations are segmenting their readership into various groups. There are people who are news hounds who will read, who read everything, who subscribe to newspapers. There are people who are politically interested. There are people who will read it for the sports, um, some for the sense of community. There's also young families who read newspapers who want to know what to do in their town this weekend. You know, they're the family forward segment. So newspapers are trying to target those types of readers, both in print and online. The other thing that happens in we see is that newspapers generally reach between 15 and 30 percent of the people in their metro areas. So uh, mm. even the best ones like the Minneapolis Star Tribune reaches about 30 percent, the Boston Globe about 25 percent. The typical newspaper like Dallas and Philadelphia, it's about 15 or 17 percent. Most residents of these areas 
get their news from other sources. Now that may be social media, but it's also from the dozens, if not in Philadelphia, there's more than a hundred news organizations beyond the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, just wow. to give you a, a sense of what that means. Um, and in terms of scope, the Philadelphia Inquirer still has over 200 reporters. We've managed to keep its numbers up through the work of the Lenfest Institute. The local public radio and TV station, WHYY, has about 60. The three network news stations have about 20 to 30 each. There's an African-American newspaper, a Hispanic newspaper with you know 20 people each. And then you get down into dozens and dozens that are five people you know, running a tiny uh, news and information operation, whether to provide health information or other things that help make up the ecosystem of a metro area. And the newspapers, I don't know if they're like the anchor um, stores at a mall or they're, they're the hub of the ecosystem. They are really essential to the community-wide news gathering and accountability journalism that is necessary for people to thrive in a, in a democracy. I couldn't agree with you more, particularly on that last point, Ken, because in recent years, the press was helping inform the public about a lot of stuff that was going on in Washington, and they continue to do that. But without a free press, I don't know where we'd be. Yeah, let, let me give you one example of something we did at the Lenfest Institute toward that. We started a, uh, an operation called Spotlight PA. Coverage of Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania, was down to you know, like three or four people, one from the Inquirer, one from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, you know, one from the Harrisburg newspaper, et cetera. And this is the sixth largest state, which spends 300 billion a year or so on mm. infrastructure and other things in Pennsylvania. Um, the election in Pennsylvania, an important topic. So we got the newspapers who had reporters in Harrisburg or several of them to pool their reporters. And then we went out to the community and community foundations and raised money. So we took what had been four reporters in Harrisburg and are now have a bureau of 12, mostly funded through donations covering the state capital, the election, all the things that go on in the legislature in Pennsylvania. And um, it's distributed through uh, both public radio, public TV and uh, more than 60 outlets around the state. So there's, there's ways to step in where coverage is lost, such as in state houses. And ProPublica is, has a project in Illinois covering the Illinois State House. There's others, uh, Texas Tribune covers the State House in Austin, in Texas. Um, democracy is really hurt if major state capitals and state operations, let alone the city ones, are, uh, are no longer covered because the newspapers and cutting their staff from, you know, by 60 or 70 percent just no longer have anyone to send there. Yes. And I thank you for elaborating on something that I didn't mention. I was focusing at one point there about coverage of national news and rightly so state news. So important, certainly important with this election and Pennsylvania, where you and I are from, extremely important in 2020. Quick comment, if you might give us, this isn't really the focus, but it's, it's tangential, but somewhat related, Ken. Magazines going through the same kind of turmoil or not quite? Yes. Magazines and newspapers 10 years ago had a strategy focused around reach. 
how many people could they reach? They would set, then sell digitally and they could then sell digital advertising against it. That didn't work and it didn't work for two reasons. One is Google, the other is Facebook. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's, it's even more complex than that. It's like if you were a car dealer and you used to advertise in a newspaper or you used to advertise or, or Macy's would advertise in newspapers and magazines, the car dealer now says, I want to reach people in these seven zip codes. I want to reach people who make more than X thousand a year because that's who buys my car. I want to actually reach people who looked at a car ad or read a car article online. Where do you go to buy those people? It used to be the newspaper ad salesperson would come and say, buy an ad in the Philadelphia Inquirer or philly.com. Now they just go to Google and they get those people more quickly. And where are those people? Where are they getting them from? Turns out that more people go to weather.com in any city than the newspaper. That's where you find the people. John Wanamaker, who uh, owned a Philadelphia department store called Wanamaker's back uh, before it sold out to Macy's in the 1980s, had a line saying that half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. Problem is, I don't know which half. <laughs> now, now with the uh, internet, you know which half. You know what's working, you know what's not working. Putting ads in print is just less efficient and that's been driving it down too. So what, what you see then with newspapers, magazines, and even websites is a move toward reader revenue. And that could mean digital subscriptions, that could mean memberships as some smaller news organizations do, that could mean donations, but basically you can't rely anymore on scale and advertising. What you have to rely on is creating a local loyal repeat audience that uh, you can then have join you in some way, whether through subscriptions, memberships, or whatever. Boy, it's fascinating to hear you talk about the evolution and how quickly it's really happened when you think about the number of years that it's taken for this change to unfold. Quick comment and a question. You were talking about the fewer number of individuals who work on newspaper staffs. And I will say one of my daughters majored in journalism and did not pursue a career in journalism because she just felt there weren't enough opportunities out there for her. So I'm sure that's the case with many other students who went to school majoring in things like journalism and, and ended up going into some related career, but not in the career of journalism per se. My question relates to what's happening outside of the United States, Ken. Looking Forward has listeners who live in Canada, in Europe, and elsewhere. I'm wondering if what you've been speaking about in any way is applicable to trends in the newspaper industry happening in other places around the world. Can you comment a little bit on that, please? We sometimes look to publications outside the U.S. for ideas. If I said there's a thousand experiments in the U.S., there's experiments going on all over the world, too. Interesting. One of the best publications or best companies at monetizing digital subscriptions and monetizing digital is Shipstead, S-H-I-B, Stead, in uh, Scandinavia. I forget if it's based in Sweden or Norway. But they've done a great job of marketing. Uh, you know, one of the challenges you have in digital subscriptions is that the only people who are going to ever take a subscription are the people who come regularly and have developed a habit. Um, they've done a great job of marketing digital subscriptions through basically letting people know what is in, what is out. Here's what you get if you pay. Here's what you 
don't get if you just read the two or three articles you get for free. There's a lot that, you know, while the national newspapers in the US have done really well, the local newspapers are slower on the uptake of all of this digital marketing. Digital marketing is a thing and some of the newspapers outside of the US are very sophisticated about that. The Financial Times, though it's a multinational paper, you know, chooses an article every day to give away to let people know what you would get if you subscribe, doesn't let you get anything else. But there's just all sorts of uh, techniques that have been experimented with around the world that are, the last thing I'll say internationally, and I worked in Brussels for the Wall Street Journal Europe for a number of years, is that news consumption patterns differed by country. And the simplest example is in Sweden, 90% of newspapers were home delivered. In Italy, it was about 5%. Hmm. Now in Italy, maybe it was like, I go to the newsstand, I get my coffee, and that's what I do in the morning. The weather's great. Sweden, maybe I don't want to go outside my door most of the winter. <laughs> I don't know that's true or not. Um, you, you see, and in England, you don't actually subscribe to the newspaper. You go to your local newsstand and I tell them to deliver one to you if you want one delivered to your home. So um, it's, there, there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution around the world, but around the world, people are moving away from print toward getting their news on their desktop uh, phones, you know, et cetera. So it's fair to say then, you kind of hit on this, it's fair to say that this phenomenon that you've been describing, which is fewer people certainly reading the newspaper in their hand and even going online to read a newspaper is reducing around the world triggered by the internet and social media and phones and all that stuff. Yes. And what does the newspaper have that you don't have online? And, you know, let, let me kind of talk about the differences between for a moment. Newspaper layout is uh, a great navigation tool. It tells you by the size of the type, it tells you what stories are more important than others. By the length, you can see how long the stories are. You can see whether they're on the first page or the fifth page. You know, there's a lot of information conveyed in newspaper layout. And it's really hard to get all that information across on a screen, let alone on a phone. One of the things I find most interesting in the experiments, uh, Newsday, the newspaper on Long Island in New York, um, has a part of their phone app. They've got a, a button you click on called a paper. And what pops up is the something is basically the replica edition. On your phone, you see the layout of the paper and then you tap on a story and then you read it. So I think part of what has to happen is the product, uh, if people are going to give up newspapers, the product has to, the digital product has to be better. One other story, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette um, decided to eliminate print in Little Rock, Arkansas and, or at least go to Sunday only. And what it did is it gave its readers, as part of their subscription, you get an iPad. Uh, giving people an iPad actually wasn't enough. You had to go around, if your readers were 70 or 80, you had to go around and uh, help them learn to use it. <laughs> uh, when the Salt Lake Tribune just went to Sunday only from seven day, they said the key to them keeping their readers, which they did, was you have to have a call center where you can help people reset their Apple ID password. I mean, this is the <laughs> You've got loyal, long-time readers who want what a newspaper offers. And even if it's fewer than you had before, and it's not as economical to print and drive them around to people's homes as it was before, 
you still uh, can serve them with the news and solving that puzzle of how to do it is an unfinished challenge for the newspaper industry. Yes, I can tell a lot of imagination, innovation, creativity required, particularly at this time for those in the newspaper industry. You've been describing very well for us, Ken, the changes that have occurred, and they've been rapid ones over the last few decades in the newspaper industry. I'm wondering where COVID-19 fits into this, this last year that we've been challenged by. What impact have you seen in terms of readership, in terms of the creativity and innovation, in terms of advertising, staffs? What impacts are you seeing, Ken? Well, in terms of readership and ad dollars, remember the trends have been down. So 2020, just fast forward to 2024. You know, it's, yeah. it's just several more, you know, what we've seen is it's, it's like, this is what we projected for four years out and it's here now. Um, doesn't mean that uh, it's gonna just continue down from there, though it might, it may flatten out for a while. You know, if you were a print only newspaper and didn't have a good digital presence, you were in trouble for a couple of reasons. One, um, local shops were closed. They weren't advertising, at least for many months. Delivering papers, finding people to, to you know, deliver newspapers has been getting harder and harder. It got started to get harder five years ago when Uber and Lyft became important because if you want to drive around for money, um, you don't have to do it at five in the morning. You can do it for Uber. Oh, interesting. Not, not to drive past people's houses and throw uh, papers on the lawn. So the number of missed deliveries has, was bad during this period. So apologies to those people who want their print newspaper <laughs> have been getting less reliable delivery. Um, but if you were a free newspaper in a town of 10 or 20,000 people, and you relied on the local businesses to buy ads in your paper, you had no money for four months. And yeah. You know, you may have gotten PPP loans and uh, things like that, but uh, we don't have statistics now on how many have gone out of business. But the local media association and the Lenfest Institute uh, distributed about eight or nine million dollars worth of grants to uh, you know applicants, you know, for small newspapers who needed new equipment. You know, we say this is if you if you need new equipment so people can work at home because your staff can't come into the office anymore or uh, there was grant funding available, not charitable funding available to help newspapers get through this. How many did or didn't is not clear yet. What a wonderful service offered by the Lenfest Institute. Now I'd like us to jump to the essence of looking forward, which is looking into the future. Only a few years. If you want to go further out, good for you. It's very hard to do that. I guess some of us could have predicted COVID, but most of us missed it. So, Ken, if you had to predict what trends or developments we would see occurring, let's say, during the rest of this decade or the next several years in the newspaper industry, what might you say they'd be? And I would like you to get back to uh, talking about the innovations that you're seeing out there. I think that's fascinating stuff. Please share with us your thoughts. Well, most newspaper readers and are going to be even subscribers are going to be subscribing for either Sunday plus digital or online only versions of newspapers. Um, even at the Philadelphia Inquirer, which has about 140,000 circulation, half of that is 
seven day, half of that is Sunday plus digital. You've got newspapers like the Boston Globe, and I'm going to not talk about the national newspapers, but I could if you want me to talk about the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and New York Times. But you've got Metro newspapers who have now gotten to the point where they have enough digital reader revenue, digital subscription revenue to support their newsrooms. Whatever happens to print, they can. Uh, the Boston Globe is there. They have 220,000 digital subscribers. That's more than they have print subscribers. 70% um, of them pay the full price of $30 a month. Uh, others pay introductory rates of various sorts. It gets fuller price over time. Sure. Um, the Minneapolis Star Tribune is not that far behind. The Seattle Times is not that far behind. The Philadelphia Inquirer is behind, as is Dallas. And we're, we're trying to get up that path. Yeah. Requires some digital marketing skill and know-how. So the primary experience with newspapers will be digital. They'll offer print. Uh, Mark Thompson, who was head of the New York Times, described print once as a luxury product. We're a digital company, and if people want to pay for print, we will print it for them. The, it gets more expensive as the uh, numbers go down because there's a lot of fixed costs involved, but that's where it's going. The other thing I'll say, and if I could jump away toward news, uh, local news for newspapers, there's going to be a lot more digital than other startups in local news to fill the niches that the newspapers used to fill that they no longer fill. And there's some really interesting uh, support mechanisms for that. If you're two journalists and you'd like to start something and you're not a tech person and you don't, and you're not a business person and you just wanna do reporting, there's a group now called Tiny News Collective which operates under a franchise model in that you basically take a franchise and I will be the franchise in this town. I can buy myself out of it. It's a nonprofit organization. It's run by Aaron Pilhoffer of Temple University. Um, and it's, you know, has more than a hundred people in the program now to start their own news organizations. More advanced is something called NewsPack, which is funded by Google. It's actually, Google has provided $6 million to the Lindfest Institute to hire developers, mostly through Automatic, the developer of WordPress, to create a platform, which is a news business in a box uh, built on WordPress. This is more like if you're five or 10 people that you uh, have a platform you can pick up and use. And it not only provides a content management system for your uh, content of video, audio, print, photography, and the like, but it also provides tools to manage your, your subscriptions, your memberships. Um, you know, and to, you know, invite people to events and to produce newsletters. I should give a shout out to newsletters because they are digital email newsletters. That is newspapers use them not because as an, you know, because newsletters are a great thing, even though they are, they use them to develop habit. You know, it's like, if I read the newsletter every day, it sends me to their website, you know, to read the full article and I find the articles I want to read. It sends me to the website once a week or, you know, twice a month. And if you ever want somebody to subscribe and be a member and be, for whatever reasons, a regular paying reader of your publication, um, you've got to get them to sample it a lot. And newsletters are really good at that. I want to come back to the local papers and some of the startups you're referring to. But before I do, can you please comment about the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, they are sort of leading the pack in some ways. Are they doing things that you think are 
innovative and successful at building up their readership and advertising base? Yeah, they're they're home free financially. I mean, you know, with uh, New York Times, I forget if it's six or seven million digital subscriptions now, the Wall Street Journal, two or three, the Washington Post, two or three. They have hundreds of millions of dollars of digital subscription revenue. Their newsroom is paid for. Um, their technology is, you know, paid for on an ongoing basis. They have been expanding their reporting capability. They have been adding reporters. They have been growing. The Washington Post is adding international bureaus. You know, they, uh, you know, they have readers around the world. Uh, and what did they do right? One, they focused early on, and by early on, I mean. Well, the, the journal starting around, it launched WSJ.com in 1996 and started charging for it in 1997. New York Times started charging in 2011 and the Washington Post more recently than that after Jeff Bezos uh, took it over. Um, they've invested really heavily in technology and digital product and also um, audience development, digital marketing. It used to be that in a newspaper, it still happened in local newspapers till recently, reporters wrote stories, somebody laid them out, somebody printed them and the circulation department tried to sell the paper. Well, that's not how it works anymore. The uh, reporters need to help develop the audience. They need to be in the, you know, they're, they're producing a digital product. They can't hand the story in at the end of the day if everyone's reading the story at 8 a.m. and on their lunch break and at 5 p.m. You've got to get the cycles of news production in line with the times when people read. And the other biggest change in reporting, and I'll illustrate this with uh, an example from the Dallas Morning News. I was down there a few years ago and said, what drives your traffic? What drives your readership? And they said, Dallas Cowboys and crime. And when a Dallas Cowboy commits a crime, it goes through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens. So, um, I wonder if that's going to happen for the Eagles. Now nah, we won't get into that. <laughs> they also said they had two of their four Cowboys reporters with 10 times the audience of the other two. And the question was, why? And the answer was, uh, there's a fan conversation going on online about the Cowboys. The two who had the traffic would read the fan conversation. They know what questions people were asking. They'd go and do reporting and talk to people and feed their stories into the fan conversation. The other two would walk around and ask the general manager what was going on. And, you know, it sounded, looked like a good story, but uh, that's not what people were talking about. So I think that going forward, you know, newspapers have to be in tune with what their audiences are thinking about, asking about, talking about in ways they didn't used to be. And the large papers, the national papers, the one figured that out early. They figured out what people were reading. They figured out how to produce more of what people liked. They organized their website to help you find more of what people liked. You know, there's a lot of service journalism in that. And the New York Times will have articles on health and on your money and other things that aren't really news. But if that's what people are reading, you have to be responsive to that as part of the package of, and with it too, you get the breaking news and the important national stories. Excellent. You made me think of something else too. With these local newspapers, there are things I'm seeing coming online that are very local to the immediate neighborhood. And then there are things like the Morning Brew, Billy Penn. Is this 
stuff that's just sprouting without the involvement of Lenfest and Google and other organizations. The gentleman at Temple that you mentioned. In fact, I know a an individual who worked for the Inquirer many years ago, and he was kind enough at that point to do a story on me and my book. He's started an e-newspaper for New Jersey, where he's at. So where does that fit in with the trends? Is that what you were talking about before, Ken? Well, when I said there were 5,000 new digital news organizations that had sprung up over the last 10 years, that's what it is. Now, in Philadelphia, the Lentfest Institute is partly funding some of them and trying to get them uh, going to, to strengthen not just the overall news ecosystem, but also to strengthen the news and information available for underserved communities. There are parts of Philadelphia and parts of major metros, you know, major metropolitan areas where there may be groups that are really poorly served with news and civic information. And a lot of these startups are done by people who come from those communities and can provide a truly valuable service to them. So yes, that's the future as well. And our main role is to try to help make sure that it's as easy as possible for them to do it, whether through a franchise model or through providing the technology so that they can focus on the news and information and civic information that the people need. We may come back to that again soon, but let me ask you one other question based on something you said, which is, do you see it becoming necessary? And I see a little bit of this happening even in Philadelphia. I think the Inquirer is kind of behind some of this and probably Lenfest as a result is involved with it. Do newspaper reporters, journalists for newspapers have to get more involved with their community? And when I say involved, I don't mean getting involved necessarily in some sort of a community project. I mean, becoming a face to the public, being out there in panel programs and giving presentations. So they become known. Is that happening? Yes, it's happening. And I think the biggest advantage of it is it's about trust. If the newspaper is written and it just seems completely distant and you've never seen anybody who works there, uh, you don't know whether to believe it or not, but the more visible people are in the community, um, the, you know, the, the more the paper is trusted and people therefore feel they can rely on it. Yeah, I think it's a great thing to do to connect with your readership in whatever way is feasible. Now, the other aspect of looking forward that's very important is opportunities. And of course, a lot of what you've said and said so well, Ken, is how the number of opportunities, at least for staff at papers, has shrunk, at least in terms of print journalism. And I don't have to tell you, you're very informed that we've seen a lot of people lose their jobs through COVID, not just in newspapers, but in a lot of different areas. We have students who go to Temple and Columbia, and they're trying to figure out what they should do with the rest of their lives. What should they major in? And we have those people who are not happy with what they're doing. And maybe COVID accelerated their thinking of what should I do differently? What might I do? And there's always the entrepreneurs, thank goodness, and the investors. So are there any areas where you see opportunities. We've been talking about these local niche papers. I don't know if that's a business opportunity, but where might you see some opportunities for people, Ken? Okay. So two areas for young people. Um, if you, newspapers need 
staff who understand the internet, understand the statistics. You know, they who can understand how to use social media to develop audience, how to um, get stories read. There's, there's a, you know, the Inquirer now has a seven-person audience development group, which basically takes the stories and distributes them in various ways uh, through social media mostly, but also Twitter and the like, to drive people back to reading the stories in the Inquirer. That's a skill that uh, I'm not saying it's it belongs only to young people, but that but if you're good at that, you're in high demand. If you can understand the statistics that uh, you know internet marketing, you're in high demand. The other thing I'll say, and this is maybe nobody wants to hear this, but I talked to a journalist recently who was leaving the they became editor of the Journal of the American Skin Cancer Association. You know, there's there's lots of specialty publications wow. that are really good and useful and helpful. And those are all growing. So it's not like there's no journalism jobs. The, the other thing is if you're a reporter in the year 2021, if you can't take a you need to be able to take cell phone photos, you need to be able to shoot video, you need to be able to tweet it, you need to be able to send back takes as it goes, so, you know, to update the website live. You know, there's a whole lot you need to be able to do that wasn't part of the skill set that journalists had 10 years ago. And so if you are really good with the new skills that are needed to be a multimedia journalist in the year 2021, you'll be in demand. That's excellent to talk about the skills and how they've changed. Absolutely true. You can't just write anymore. The other thing, if you could just laser in a little bit on those local papers that are emerging, is there a way to make a living or an investment opportunity for somebody? People have made money at it. There are people who do make a living at it. Um, there's a group of newspapers, uh, local newspapers called Tap Into in New Jersey. It's like tap into Morristown, tap into um, Somerset, tap into the, you know, little different places. They built up a pretty good business overall by essentially franchising and providing you with all the things you need to run a small town newspaper in your town. The issue is in the olden days, you had to print the thing, you had to mail the thing, you had to do all of these, these things. Digitally, it's a slightly different world, but there's still opportunity and there's also opportunity for donation-funded public service journalism. ProPublica led the way in this, in that they proved that there was um, money to fund journalism that makes a difference. And I think that's, and we've been raising money in Philadelphia for journalism that makes a difference in, you know, there's a group called Resolve Philadelphia, which uh, three or four person group that uh, we've been funding that helps coordinate coverage on issues amongst the 20 or so media outlets in Pennsylvania on prison reentry, on economic justice in Philadelphia, so that the these are big problems and no one media outlet is going to cover them in all their in all their aspects. But you, you want some stories on economic justice from the African American paper, from the uh, Hispanic paper, as well as from the Philadelphia Inquirer, from the and you want them to run on the local. NBC and CBS and ABC affiliates. So there's opportunities in different ways. Thank you for shedding light on those different opportunities. Ken, one last quick thing I also thought I wanted to ask you about. This is not necessarily an opportunity to make money for the individual, but I'm wondering, I don't know how much of this was done in the past, 
but I could see where there's a need for it now. And you would know if it's happening. Are newspapers putting together panels of readers and or non-readers saying, let's get together. Maybe it's by Zoom, you know, but let's get together and find out what you're looking for, what you want in the Philadelphia Inquirer or the Dallas Times or whatever the paper is. Is any of that happening? To some degree, it's always happened, but it's happening differently now. Um, the way product development works now, they, they, there's this concept called personas, um, that you've got different types of readers and you're talking to people who represent various types of readers. So for example, the young families who want to know what to do in, this, in their area on the weekend, that's a type of reader. There's type of readers who are interested in sports. So people will get together and the inquirer called 20 or so people, it's, it, you know, they, there's market research going on and market research happens in a lot of ways. It happens uh, directly by, by talking to people, as you mentioned, but it also happens by watching what people click on, what people do mm. online. So there's a variety of ways that happens, but yes, newspapers are absolutely interested in that in ways they weren't. If you go back to the 1960s or 70s or early 80s, when the newspaper editor was the all-knowing uh, person who knew what people wanted to know. <laughs> That's right. And handed it down. Yeah. It's, it's not that world anymore. And what you just said, we've seen happen to many industries. Ken, this has been terrific. How can our listeners find out more about you, the Lenfest Institute for Journalism, and anything else you think they should know about? Two answers. One, you can find out more about the Lenfest Institute at our website, www.lenfestinstitute.org. And we also have a weekly newsletter called Solution Set, which talks about innovations in the news business, uh, to, you know, which is circulated mostly among practitioners, but some other people may find it interesting. And some of the sources I mentioned earlier, like the Pew Research Center, the Reuters Institute, and the Pointer Institute, publish regularly about what's going on in the news industry. So that's another place you can find out more. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your thoughts about the newspaper industry, past, present, and future. It's been wonderful having you on, Ken. It's been great being here. Thanks for hosting this, and I hope it sparks some ideas in the listeners. I hope so, too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward. <laughs>